All right, if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, we are back in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at the first 12 verses together this morning. So if you'd turn there, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. And if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping, uh, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them." Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, You enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he had he saw what had, heard, what had occurred, for he was astonished. And he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Lord, we do just give you all praise and all glory this morning. It's a privilege and a joy to sing your name. You are worthy of our praise. And so we pray that you would be glorified in this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> So excited to get back into our regular study in the book of Acts and return specifically to this church at Antioch. It's been well over a month since we left this local church right in the heart of a city described as the epicenter of immorality in the first century. Remember, this was a very dark place. This was a, a dark, dark place rampant with what we discussed last week, actually, sexual immorality, sexual deviancy. Uh, This city, Antioch, had a notorious reputation of being the hot spot for licentious uh, sexual indulgence. Uh, Travelers likened it to an outdoor brothel. They said people went there specifically to indulge their sensual appetites and vices. But alas, this city, this very city, this dark, dark city is where the Lord uh, determined to have the light of his gospel shine the brightest. And that's, obvious, that, that's oftentimes the case, right? Uh, 
the light of God's grace, the light of God's mercy and salvation finds its greatest illuminations in the places we'd never expect. And in the hearts of people we'd never expect, in the darkest of environments. That was Antioch. As we'll see this morning and in the coming weeks, this dark city, and specifically the church in this dark city, actually becomes the hub and the headquarters for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. This church in Antioch, this body of believers at Antioch, is actually the model congregation. Okay, they're a, they're a shining example of obedience, faithfulness to the Lord, and service, and, and Really, their example is applicable for all generations of believers that would follow, including this generation and including the believers here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. So let's just dive right in here. Uh, Luke writes in verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. It says Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. First thing I want us to notice is the names here. Barnabas, of course, we've met along the way, first in chapter 4, then in uh, chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. His actual name was Joseph, but he was quickly nicknamed Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement. And there was Simeon, who was called Niger. Now this word Niger means black, and most reputable commentators agree that he was from North Africa. After Barnabas and Simeon, We have Lucius of Cyrene, who uh, many think was one of the original founders of this church at Antioch. His Latin name indicated that he was brought up in Roman culture, uh, likewise with Menaean. Menaean is the Greek form of a Hebrew name, which means that he was likely a Hellenistic Jew. And Luke says here that Menaean was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, of Herod Antipas, the same guy who had... Uh, John the Baptist's head brought to him on a platter uh, and and brought to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, after John told him that their potential union was unlawful. Uh, This is the same Herod that was intoxicated by the dancing of a young woman. This is the same Herod who desired to kill Jesus. This is the same Herod whose followers decided or, or desired to kill Jesus and conspired with the Jews frequently to do just that. This is the same Herod who ridiculed a beaten and bruised Jesus after his Roman trials uh, and after his Jewish trials. This is the same Herod who mocked Jesus and shuffled him back to Pontius Pilate. And this guy, Menean here, says he was a lifelong friend. Uh, Really, this phrase indicated that he was like an adopted brother of Herod the Tetrarch, or as they would say these days, a brother from another mother. (laughs) That was Menean. They were close. They were tight, but in the past few years, Herod went one way, ultimately falling out of favor with Rome. He was exiled to this place called Gaul, where he would die. Menean went another way, here mentioned in the same breath as Barnabas and Saul, as being one of the primary leaders, one of the gifted men. One of the prophets and teachers of this missionary hub, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ at Antioch. Now, a couple of additional things stand out to me from this first verse. First, I want you to look at the diversity in leadership 
in this, in this church, okay? You have a Greek, you have a Jew, you have a couple Hellenistic Jews. Uh, James Boyce said, <coughs> in, in the empire, these groups usually had very little to do with one another. Greeks did not like Romans very much. Romans did not like Greeks very much. Jews didn't like anybody. Uh, the rich despised the poor. The poor hated the rich. The educated people looked down on those who were uneducated and so on. But not in the church at Antioch. And the five names of the teachers tell an enormous amount about this church. So that's the first thing. Uh, Not only was there diversity in the congregation, as we've seen, but there was diversity in the leadership. Second thing I found interesting was not what was in the text, but what seems to be missing from the text. There doesn't seem to be any mention here about the senior pastor. Did you see that anywhere listed? I must be missing something here. I must be missing. I must be missing where he mentioned anything about the senior pastor. Now, this is an awfully big detail to miss for such a, a, an important church, right? I, I'm surely missing this crucial detail, which Luke certainly would have included in his description of such a monumentally significant body of believers, the headquarters of Paul's first missionary journey. Where's the pastor? Who's the pastor? I got to know it. I got to know who he is. Who held the office of pastor? Well, interestingly, we never get to meet the senior pastor of Antioch. We don't get to meet the senior pastor of Corinth either, or Philippi, or any of those books. Why? Because the senior pastor model isn't one that's found in the scriptures. The biblical model, the New Testament model, is one of shared leadership. The appointment or recognition of elders or overseers, plural. Look there. Luke says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. He lists five men. I don't know which ones were prophets, which ones were teachers. It says Barnabas, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. These were the leaders of the church in Antioch, leaders who had a particular gifting for the building up of the body in Christ. Some teachers, some who expounded the word of God, instructed the people and training the people according to sound doctrine, according to the apostles' teaching. Uh, And then there were some prophets. And again, I don't know which of these five were prophets. But they were true prophets, I know that. True prophets who gave new revelation in a time when new revelation was being given. Prophets were necessary at this time. They were vital in the early church. They didn't have Paul's letter to the Colossians. They didn't have Paul's letter to the Philippians. They didn't have 1 John or 1 Peter or Revelation. In fact, The things that Paul talked about in these letters I just mentioned were mainly things that were yet to happen on these missionary journeys here in Acts 13. So at this point, God was still giving new revelation for the body. And we've seen this already, right? In chapter 11, you remember Agabus? One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place, Luke says, in the days of Claudius. He gave new revelation from God to the church, and wouldn't you know it, that prophecy, that revelation came true. Later in chapter uh, 21, and coming to us, Agabus took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. You remember, everyone freaks out about it. And Paul's like, what are you doing to me here? Why, why, why are you crying over this? Why are you crying for me, shedding tears for me? I'll gladly be bound for the sake of the gospel. I'll die for the sake of the gospel. The Holy Spirit didn't say not to go. He just said I was going to end up bound and delivered to the Gentiles, right? I'm okay with that. In fact, they'd actually be doing me a favor. That's my target audience there. And that's exactly what happened, right? That's what true prophecy was. It was new revelation. It was accurate revelation from God. And that's exactly how we know we have no more prophets today. Uh, The folks who claim to give new revelation from God are quite often wrong, mostly wrong, almost always wrong, and therefore they're false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. No senior pastor, no associate pastor, no executive pastor at Antioch, no just a body of gifted men and women with some men called to oversee and shepherd Christ's flock. Not for the glory of the leadership, not for the glory of themselves, but for the building up of the body and the glorification of the head, who is Christ, Jesus. This is the model congregation. This body of believers uh, is also mentioned in verse 2, uh, where Luke writes, while they were worshiping in, uh, the Lord and fasting, uh, that's the church at Antioch, why they were worshiping and fasting. I like the King James here, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. They were ministering to the Lord. They were offering uh, themselves as living sacrifices. They were serving the Lord in the name of their Lord. They were ministering in the name of their Lord. And they were doing so by the grace of and for the glory of their Lord. Luke says they were fasting, which uh, usually meant abstaining from food. They were fasting in eager anticipation of their prayers being heard and answered one way or another. This was common practice of the pious Jews at that time. They would fast twice a week, and the early believers kept the same customs. One commentator described it as a foregoing of food, and a giving of one's time over to spiritual things with the intention of seeking God's direction for a new phase of life. That's what the church at Antioch was doing. That's what what happened. While they were worshiping and fasting, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now what jumps out at this verse is the Holy Spirit said, How did he said? How did he say it? How did this look? How did this sound? Was there a booming voice? Was there a great wind which accompanied this booming voice? Did the place that they were in shake? Did little tongues of flaming fire come down and land on their heads? Did it burn their head? I don't know. I don't know why... There's such speculation about this, and it may sound silly to to bring those things in, but whole denominations and whole sects of Christendom have been formed off of these types of speculation. They get something in their mind, and they think, well, this must have have been how it was, and then they form a whole denomination out of it or a whole 
It's like it doesn't say it here. I don't know what it sounded like. But we do have some indication. We have some clue in verse 1 where Luke says, now there were in church, uh, in the church of Antioch prophets. This must have come through one of the prophets. I'd venture to say that the prophets received and communicated a divine prophecy. The divine prophecy, which comes in the form of command. Right? Look at the command. He says, do this. Set apart, separate from me. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Again, who called Barnabas and Saul? Was it the church? Was it uh, the congregation? Was it the elders? Was it a mission committee? Was it a missions organization? The International Mission Board? Was it the dean of foreign missions at the local Bible college? Was it the president of Antioch Theological Seminary? No. Did, did Paul and Barnabas call themselves? No, no. God the Holy Spirit called them. God the Holy Spirit chose them for this specific work to which he had equipped them for. He had prepared them for. He had gifted them for. Now, why, do, why make such a big deal out of all these specifics here? Why are we splitting hairs here? We do it because it's so easy for people to be convinced and and be even manipulated into thinking that all these things are ultimately dependent on us, uh, on our methodology, our strategizing, our organizing. Uh, We need a senior pastor, a a man with a vision to guide all of us common folk, you know. We need to uh, raise up missionaries. We need to strategize when we can, when and where we can send them. We need to encourage them and train them how to raise support Uh, for the rest of the body. But look at the model given for us here. There's a plurality of leading men overseeing a congregation full of spirit-indwelled and spirit-enabled believers devoted to serving one another, not for the glory of themselves, but for the glory of the Lord, worshiping the Lord, uh, praying to the Lord, expecting the Lord to move, which he does through the power of his Holy Spirit who calls and commissions those whom the church then sends out. In fact, Luke says that they laid their hands on them and sent out. The word for send out here in verse three is actually released. They released Barnabas and Saul for the work the Spirit had called them to. Now again, I have to say it. Uh, The laying on of hands here is merely a symbolic gesture recognizing those who are already called, already actively engaged in the ministry and the work. This is not some ordination process where a group of guys lays their hands on another man for the beginning of his ministry or somehow qualifying him to minister because both uh, Barnabas and Saul were already actively ministering. They, They were already serving this body. They had been... Uh, with this church at Antioch for well over a year, it says in Acts chapter 11. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Then they were sent to Jerusalem to give the Judean Jews a gift from the church at Antioch. Then they came back ministering teaching, already serving. And we're here then called by the Holy Spirit to go out. So the church released them 
for the work continue to operate under the oversight of its leaders, at least three of them mentioned in verse 1, right? The text then says in verse 4, So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. They were released by the church, sent by the Spirit. I think we can learn a lot from these first four verses. The church was well-established. They, they were a mature congregation, even at this point. They had been continually exposed to the apostles' teaching. They were being instructed in sound doctrine. They were mature enough to the point where instead of the Judean Jews coming to minister to them, to build them up, they were actually training people and sending them out. And I want you to notice the Holy Spirit doesn't just send anyone. He, he sent the best they had to offer. Uh, men who were already engaged, already very active in serving the Lord, proving the old saying true. It's much easier to turn a boat that's already moving. That makes sense, right? These guys are already moving. It's much easier to... The Lord can do anything, but that's an old saying. All that to say, we want to send some of you out. Some of you may be called to the, the ministry, to, to local missions, to church planting, even global missions, but we have to do so in accordance with the will of the Holy Spirit. So we pray. We appeal to the Lord. The elders often pray. We raise up missionaries. Raise up church planters, men. Uh, train them up. Let, allow us to train them up in preaching and teaching of God's word and make it evident to all of us who this might be. We pray, bring us the right people Lord, protect us from the wrong people at just the right time. Sit apart for folks from this congregation to go out and proclaim your gospel. That's what we want. We, we love it that you're here. We'd rather have you out preaching the word, proclaiming the gospel. Barnabas and Saul, they were just the right men at just the right time because they were appointed by the very spirit of God himself. So Luke says, <clears throat> they went down to Seleucia, from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So if we look on a map here, I don't know if we have that. Oh, very nice. We have the map. So here they are, Antioch of Syria. There's two Antiochs here, Antioch of Syria, Antioch in Pisidia. Okay, but they're in Antioch of Syria. They go to that little port city called Seleucia. Then they go down to Salamis. And notice it's on the east coast of Cyprus, that island there. Then they're going to go all the way over to Paphos, which is on the west coast. So that's going to happen right here in the first 12 verses. <clears throat> and it's very interesting to note, in just these few words, when they arrive at Salamis, Luke says they faithfully proclaim the word of God. And in these few words, we see a major transition point in the book of Acts. Okay? A major shift now takes place. There's a laser focus on getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. We've seen a, sm <clears throat> a smattering of this. We've seen uh, the persecution of Stephen, how it scattered the Jews from Jerusalem throughout Judea. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch on the Gazan road to salvation. Then they went up to Samaria, and uh, we met Simon Magus, and a whole bunch of Samaritans got saved. Then the Holy Spirit calls Peter up to Caesarea where Cornelius, his whole household, believes. Then a couple of guys from Cyprus actually actually go to Antioch to share the good news of Christ in this dark, dark city. 
And remember, the Judean Jews, they send Barnabas up to check this out, to make sure everything was uh, going the way it should. He, he goes to Tarsus. He grabs Paul. They minister in Antioch for a year where Christ continues to build his church. And from this church of Antioch, these two are sent out to go to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission is literally being fulfilled, going back through Cyprus first, but now with a whole new perspective on Gentiles. Gentiles. And Barnabas, he would know all about this region, right? This is where he was from. Remember Acts 4. Joseph, who was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of where? Cyprus. Cyprus. Sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Yeah, Barnabas knew all about this place. It wasn't a huge island by any means. It was 100 miles long, 60 miles wide at its widest point. From all I read, it was a very nice place. It had a good population, had an abundance of not only crops, but lush vegetation, it had precious metals, minerals. So Barnabas and Paul, they sail in, they start on the east coast, they begin working all their way to the west coast, doing what? You know, proclaiming the word of God. Preaching the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Well, wait a sec. Why the Jews again? I, I thought we were on this Gentile mission. I thought there was this whole new outlook on the Gentiles. They go right to the synagogues? Well, yeah, that's what Paul always did. But why? Well, for a few reasons. First, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. We even read in a, uh, we'll even read in a couple weeks where Paul and Barnabas say in verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. They had a divine obligation to preach to their own people. Uh, second, as one commentator notes, both Gentile proselytes and God-fearing Gentiles would have been in the synagogues. They would have been key in the evangelistic efforts, even here on the island of Cyprus. Just practically speaking, this the Jews would have been the most logical initial context because they had knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, which the missionaries would use on their uh, apologetic presentations. Finally, the Abrahamic covenant had not been nullified. Of course we're going to preach to the Jews. It's their own people. Oh, bless those who bless you. It only made sense that Paul would go to his own people first, his kinsmen according to the flesh, Romans chapter 9. So they were faithfully proclaiming the word of God to the Jews first. But as we'll see in the coming weeks, even this morning, the ongoing focus and mission uh, has turned to the Gentiles here. They even had an assistant, Luke says, John. This was John Mark. This is the same guy who uh, wrote the gospel of Mark. He was like an intern for these guys. We'll read more of him in the coming chapters. But here they are, faithfully proclaiming the word of God. They're proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ Christ throughout this whole island, when all of a sudden they get some opposition, right? Luke says in verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of great intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, same guy, uh, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. 
Now, two people are identified here. Let's talk about Sergius Paulus first. This guy was really the governor of the island, okay? The whole island. He was the most important Roman official on the island. Cyprus was a senatorial province in the Roman Empire. You know, in Rome, they didn't have kings, right? And the Senate, the Roman Senate or consuls, had the greatest authority in the Roman government. And this guy and other proconsuls like him essentially acted as a representative of the authorities back in Rome. Uh, the Senate back in Rome deputized this guy, made him proconsul over Cyprus. Uh, and again, he was the highest Roman official on the land. And, and the text says he was very wise. This guy was very wise. Luke calls him a man of intelligence, a man with great understanding. And verse 7 says this wise, intelligent governor of this whole island actually summons Barnabas and, and Saul. He demands that Barnabas and Saul be brought before him. This, this phrase is actually best translated. He called unto himself these two ordinary men. And for what purpose? Well, he sought to hear the word of God. He wanted to hear the word of God for himself. He was a wise man. He was an intelligent man. He was a man able to understand certain things. He sought to hear the word of God. Now, these Roman officials, they had all kinds of influencers, influencers around them, all kinds of people in their ear, uh, philosophers, religious zealots, astronomers, astrologers, those who practiced divination, who summoned uh, demonic entities, fortune tellers. These guys were actually very superstitious, so it should come as no surprise that this magician, which is a prod term in, including all those practices I just mentioned, it should come as no surprise to see that Bar-Jesus otherwise known as Elimus, was with him. That's what it says in verse 7. When Barnabas and Saul had gone through the whole island of Cyprus as far as Paphos, again, the west coast, the capital city where this proconsul was stationed, they came upon a certain magician who was with the proconsul. Elimus was basically like uh, Sergius Paulus' personal private magician, fortune teller. He was with him. Paulus says to his servants, get these two guys that are going around my island, bring them to me. I want to hear what they have to say for myself. And how do you think that made Elimus feel? How do you think that made this magician feel? Awkward? Angry? A little bit enraged? Well, Luke says he opposed them. He opposed Barnabas and Saul. But why? He was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, this is really something. At first glance, you, you may look at this and say, what? how discouraging this is, how deflating. I mean, the word was going forth. They were preaching the word of God, the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. They even had the attention of the most important man on the island. This is a great opportunity for gospel proclamation. Then this guy comes in, he sabotages the whole thing. What's going on? Well, this may sound discouraging on the surface, Unless you knew, this is always the case when the word of the Lord is being faithfully proclaimed. There will almost always be some sort of opposition, some resistance, some disturbance, some disruption, some tribulation or trial which presents itself when real gospel work is being done. We have a very real enemy, don't we? Right? Peter says one that prowls around 
roams around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And when he says that, he's talking about Christians there. He's talking about you. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about believers there. He's talking about the brethren. Satan wants to devour us. He wants to consume our faith. He wants to discourage us to the point where we begin to doubt the promises of our Lord. He's very active, sometimes very successful in the world, in missions, in the church. I mean, it may sound great here on Sunday mornings. We all got our Sunday morning smiles on. Everyone's doing great. Got coffee and donuts. Coffee's a-flowing. The real fireworks happen Monday through Saturday. <laughs> yeah, we wrestle, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this dark, the darkness of this world, against spiritual weakness in the high places. There will almost always be opposition to what we're doing here because we're in this corrupt and cursed world which is ruled by the prince of the power of the air who blinds the minds of unbelievers and even has his false prophets like Bar-Jesus here. Actually, means son of salvation. You're actively turning people away from the light, away from the truth. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's the uh, environment we're operating within? Do you believe in the devil? Or is it just like a... Do you believe in Satan? Do you believe in demons? I hope you do. They believe in you. Satan believes in you. Not only that, but he hates you. Especially, especially if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you believe in him. You know, J.C. Ryle said, the devil is always going about as a lion seeking whom he may devour. An unseen enemy, he is always near us about our path and about our bed, spying out all our ways. Quote, we believers are evidently no friends of Satan. Like the kings of this world, he wars not against his own subjects. The very fact that he assaults us should fill our minds with hope. Fill our minds with hope? Why? Because we're in the will of the Lord. And the, the will of the Lord who promises not comfort, not health, not wealth, not prosperity for his people, but trials and tribulations and struggles and sickness and hostility and opposition, suffering even. These things produce character. And character produces what? Hope. Hope. The very fact that he assaults us should fill our minds with hope. We know God is sovereign over all these events, right? We know he has uh, Barnabas and Paul. We know that he knew that they'd be right here on this island, in this city, at this time, proclaiming this gospel before these two men, this wise proconsul and a Jewish false prophet doing everything he could to stop the ears of his governor who was about to cut off the gravy train. This guy knew that as soon as these guys came in to the governor, he was out of a job. Right? The money was going to stop flowing. So what do you think Paul's response was to this guy who was opposing him? 
You know, there's much more at stake here than just being out of the court of the proconsul. What do you think the apostle's response was to a person who was so clearly trying to oppose this work that he had been chosen for and called to, this, to oppose the message of Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, of whom he was the foremost? What do you think he said? Well, look for yourselves. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, this is a big moment in Acts. From now on, with one exception, he, he will be called by his Roman name, Paul. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And that wasn't very gentle, was it? <clears throat> that was a bit harsh. Maybe a, a bit of righteous indignation there. Two things to point out. First of all, Luke said at this moment, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. But remember, the moment that any man, woman, or child believes in the gospel, they're, in, uh, they're indwelled permanently with the very Spirit of God. This is different than filling. Remember, the Holy Spirit can never be taken away. He can never be removed. He will never leave us or forsake us. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the seal that has been set upon us. Paul himself would go on to write that he is the guarantee of our inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul, just like every other believer, was baptized and sealed permanently with the Spirit when he believed in Damascus in Acts chapter 9. But here and elsewhere he is filled, which means that he is under the control of, under the guidance of, or under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God for a specific purpose and task. And his response was to say, you are no son of Jesus. You're no son of salvation. That, that name that you bear, that's as false as the slanderous sewage that pours from your demonic lips. You're an enemy of God. You're a, you're a fierce opponent of all that is good, all that is true, all that is right, all that is just. Whether it be from man or God, you are full of deceit. You're full of guile. Remember what Jesus said to Nathaniel? He said, here's a true Israelite indeed. In him is no what? Guile, deceit. Not so with Elamis, not so with this magician. He was full of it. He was full of guile. He was full of villainy. He was... Not a true Israelite. And then Paul says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, Paul knew the way of salvation. He had been proclaiming the way of salvation. He knew there was only one way to God, not many ways to God, but one way. He knew that Jesus said, I am the way. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Paul knew that he and Barnabas belonged to the way, and he was in the process of telling Sergius Paulus the way. But then the villain, false prophet Elamus, wanted to throw a wrench in the way, didn't he? 
He wanted to set traps along the way. He wanted to make crooked the straight paths of salvation. He wanted to make straight the path to damnation. And Paul says, when are you going to knock it off, Satan, son of Satan? Sometimes you've got to be straight up with obstructionists. Sometimes you've just got to tell them. Those who would inhibit the proclamation of the word, those who would want to disrupt unity within the body, that's what Paul did here. He was straight forth. When are you going to knock it off? Stop it. And watch this in verse 11. Something very important happens here. Luke says, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, here's what's so important about this verse, what you have to remember, okay? It's at this moment, this very moment, when we see this transition in Acts solidified, okay? This is where we see things transition from Peter to Paul. The whole rest of Acts is about Paul and his missionary journeys. This is just the beginning of his first missionary journey. And right from the get-go, God the Holy Spirit demonstrates that Paul's words have, have the same authority behind them as Peter's words did. Okay? Get that? Paul says, listen, you villain, you enemy of God, you're not going to be able to see for a time. And just like that, blind, mist comes over, darkness, can't see the sun. Paul has authority behind him. His, his words carry weight. He has the authority. He has the authority of the way, the truth, the life, the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit of God. He had the spirit of God inside of him, now backing him as he denounced the satanic opposition that stood be between them and this proconsul. And it it immediately goes dark, and he goes groping about. He's seeking for someone to lead him by the hand, something Saul of Tarsus knows all too well, right? Right? And this is speculation as well, and I know, I know we don't deal in speculation here, but I do think it's interesting how Paul asks him, will you not stop being this way? When he very easily could have said, you'll never stop being a false prophet. You notice that? When are you going to stop? Maybe this was Elimus' uh, Damascus Road experience. I don't know. Not sure. Well, we don't know what will come, uh, came of this bar Jesus, this magician. Luke does tell us what happened with this proconsul. And I want you to look at verse 12 in your own Bible, okay? Look at this in your Bible. Then the proconsul believed. Then he believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the miracle. Is that what that says? The wonder, the eloquence of these missionaries, the encouragement of Barnabas, the authority of Paul. Is that what that says? No. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at what? The teaching of the Lord. The teaching of the Lord, at the doctrine of the Lord. The word of God, which this proconsul sought to hear in conjunction with the spirit of God, of course, 
transforms the hearts of sinful men and women. It's the word of God that transforms the hearts, not the word of man, not the strategies of man, not the techniques or tactics of man, not the gimmicks, not the productions, not the performance, not the pragmatism of man, not telling people what they want to hear or or scratching itching ears, but just telling people the truth of God's word. And it's plain, literal meaning, bearing testimony to the doctrine of the Scriptures. All while depending fully, wholly, completely, entirely on the Holy Spirit of God to do the work. This is a great position for us because we don't have to manipulate people in evangelism. I don't have to get, get up, up here and get you all excited or stir up some emotionalism. I'm just telling you what it says. And the Holy Spirit does the work along with the Word of God. You know, a lot of people call the book of Acts uh, the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. You know, have you ever heard that? That seems appropriate for the first 12 verses of this 13th chapter. Notice how the Holy Spirit gathered, separated, called, sent, guided, controlled, created opportunity, protected, exerted, executed all the intricate details of the first part of this chapter here. And I believe that he regenerated the heart of one of the most important men on, on the earth at that time. In light of that, it would really be foolish, foolish of us to not seek and submit ourselves fully to his will, both congregationally as they did in Antioch and individually as men and women of the Lord Jesus Christ, Right? I'm so excited to be back in the testimony of this early church here to see men and women believing in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's substitute for sinners. It really is astonishing, right? Well, I'd invite you this morning, uh, if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, reconciliation to God, I I would invite you to be astonished at his word alongside those of us who have. I invite you to place your trust in the only way to the Father, the only way to eternal life with the Father, the only way to peace with your Creator. I invite you to turn from your sin and turn to Him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? All right, let's pray, and Noel will come up and close us out here.